Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning, everyone. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. I, uh, I come from a long line of Greeks for which I am deeply grateful and for which you should feel jealous. And um, uh, on, uh, on Easter morning, on Resurrection Day, we greet each other. We say, Christos Anesti, Alithos Anesti, Christ has risen truly. He has risen. Such a privilege to be able to do that. On the west coast of the United States, we are kind of at the back end of the celebration of Easter. Billions, literally billions of people have celebrated the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And uh, we are going to finish strong on behalf of them. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, I'm going to be preaching. Um, my main text is out of Matthew 28, verse 1 to 8. The title of my message is called Empty. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it just kind of chilling on, this, on the stone. He appear, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the woman, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. They came to garden to grieve and found a grave deserted. What do we do with empty what do we do with this wind knocked out of us feeling? What do we do with the voids? That bottomlessness of noises we won't hear anymore. What about the arid seas or the urgency of wasted fig trees? What about the drought charred plains surrounding me? What do we do when hope is seized? What do we do with this vacancy, those unfilled seats at Easter feasts? Those idle couch cushions where grandma should be, what do we do with empty? They came to garden to grieve and found a grave deserted. Strips of linen lay in his place, burial shawl stained. Then, then they saw their savior's frame and deserted grave became pregnant with new life, bursting forth and dancing in that spring breeze. Mm. The fullness of the living God unleashed because he came empty of the things we thought he'd need. Mm. He did not come with army abundantly armed and eager to plunder, not with night sky filled with lightning or thunder. No, he walked to Calvary without infantry or cavalry, but with abundant grace. Crown of cursed land atop his head, he steeled his face so that our chains could be obliterated and the drains of graves unplugged and the lifeless corners of death flooded with light. 
And for the first time, I truly see what we do with empty. You guys, we breathe with lungs no longer rationing air and minds no longer filled with fear till God brings back to us all that empty stolen. Mm. Because under his banner of mercy, barren womb meets vacant tomb and the emptiness of grief comes face to face with a son hung next to thief on a tree and we don't just taste freedom, we drink. Mm from a well that does not run dry, from a fountain overflowing in a garden filled not with graves, but with milk and honey and the unrelenting, undeserved, unfailing density of his presence. And in the newfound liberty of empty, we find that our need for fame is depleted. We're no longer feeding our search for power or name. No, when you and I reckon with an untenanted grave, we find a world once laid waste, now brimming with miraculous grace. This is the power of empty. Mm. Yeah. Well done, Alex. I don't know what I was thinking leading off with that. It's like, okay. The word empty, is, uh, it's a complicated word. Um, it, we're not used to the idea of celebrating something that is empty. Empty is usually bad news. My car is empty. My bank account is empty. My stomach is empty. Um, in our home, we, we have these little drawers that are supposed to organize our house. They don't really do that. And you come to the drawer to open the drawer to find your keys. If it's empty, it's generally not, not good news. But this morning, we celebrate the idea of empty. And when, when these women arrived at the tomb, empty wasn't necessarily good news. It, it, was, it was frightening. It was mystifying. What, what, did, what did they do? Where, where is he? What happened? What, what, is, what is going on? And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the idea of what it was and what it is that empty is good news. We aren't just celebrating something that is empty, though. In verse 5, the angel told the woman, don't be afraid because I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. And so they ran to tell the disciples, and Scripture tells us that they ran both with fear and with joy. I can imagine doing that. If you're seeing an angel just chilling on the tomb, you're expecting to find a dead body, you're wondering what's going to happen, and, and you've run, and you have all this exciting news, and no one believes you. No one believes you. We know that in Scripture because in, in Luke 24, it says, but these words, this is after the woman came to the rest of the disciples, but these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the woman. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, and when he stooped to look in, he saw only linen cloths, so he went away amazed at what must have happened. I'm I'm very much like Peter, even in the sense, I've got to go and check this out for myself. He's run to the tomb. He sees the empty tomb, and he's amazed. And so he just walks back. Other, other, um, uh, other gospel accounts tell us that he just went back fishing. 
And this is Peter, who Jesus said, Peter, I must go to Jerusalem and I must die. And on the third day, I'll be raised again. I'm like, did he not make the connection? No, he didn't make the connection. And, and if you're a seeker here, and this sounds like nonsense to you, if you're a seeker here, and this is difficult for you to understand, you're in good company. Many of the disciples, many of them who later on in years, years on in their lives were martyred for the faith, started their journey of faith in unbelief and disbelief. Jesus appeared in his resurrected body and he taught his disciples. Jesus appeared in his resurrected body and with tactile touch because Thomas said, unless I put my fingers in the holes of the crucifixion and unless I put my hand in his side where he was stabbed with that spear, I will not believe. And so Jesus invites us even this morning with a sense of saying, I am, I am able to deal with a, with a lot of questions. There isn't a single question that you can ask of me that is not unanswerable because I have the keys to life and death and eternity. Today we celebrate, as Sean said, the historical fact of an empty tomb. And I'll speak a, a little more about that. The empty tomb was good and confusing news then and it's good and sometimes confusing news now. But hopefully this morning it will be less confusing. This morning we celebrate not just an empty space, but this morning we celebrate that he is risen, that he is alive, and that he is present with us as we bring him glory. So the three empty things I want to talk about this morning are the empty self, the empty cup, and the empty tomb. And the first thing that we see that Jesus did is he emptied himself. And Paul, talking of Jesus in his letter to a church in Philippi called the letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 6, says this. He's talking of Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or grasped or used. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, we are so grateful for what you've done and so privileged that we have the opportunity to say, Jesus Christ, your name is higher than any name. Your name is higher than heaven or earth or under the earth. And we will confess that you are the Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see in this idea of empty that Jesus came as a humble man and he emptied himself. So this morning, we don't just celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. We celebrate Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. So too quickly uh, within the Christian tradition, what we've done is we've passed over the life of Jesus because it's the death of Jesus that has purchased for us oneness with God and his resurrection that has assured that for us. But it's the life of Jesus that gave us a key in terms of what life in the kingdom would look like. 
He is not just. He is. He is the lamb that was slain for our sins, but he is also the king of a new kingdom. And that's what he showed. That's, when he, that's what he showed when he walked on this earth, where he exerted power over sin. And he was able to say, your sins are forgiven. Where he exerted power over disease, where he healed people. Where he exerted power over death, where we saw him raise people from the dead. And when he exerted power over Satan himself, when he rose from the dead. He instituted an upside-down, inside-out, empty-to-be-filled kingdom. The problem with that is that we don't really believe that aligning to Jesus' teachings and aligning to the way of the kingdom will make us flourish or will truly satisfy us. We just think that the idea that, that God is, is some kind of angry landlord that, is, that has set these arbitrary rules in place so that we can cower and hide. No, no. God has set forth the, the, um, the way of life and the new kingdom of God that, that truly helps us to flourish and maintain joy and understand to operate the way in which we were designed. And one of my children who shall remain nameless, we, we said to her, um, we, we know because she's grown up with us, we, we said, just remember that you can't handle a lot of sweet things. So she's going to a birthday party and we're not going to be there. So, so please, just remember, <clears throat> just remember that you, um, that's the universal sign for it. Can I have some water? There. <laughs> you didn't know that? You, didn't know that. <laughs> you all thought it was the universal sign for Karen to do this, right? So it's like, <laughs> no one thought that. So, so we said to her, baby, be careful because we, we know you, this happens to you. And, and, uh, and so... She, she didn't listen. There, there, there was a sense in which we were saying to her, like God has said to us, I, I know you, I've created you, I know the best way for you to flourish, um, and so don't do that. And she came home and she had eaten a lot of junk. How do we know this? Because we spent probably about half an hour with her as she was worshiping at the great white throne and, and throwing up um, all of this stuff. And, and Karen was there as a picture of Jesus. Now stay with me here. Because, because, because what, what, what I would probably be likely to do would be like, I told you not to do that. You're on your own. But Karen was sitting there holding her hair back, saying, it's okay, baby, I'm, I'm with you. And that's the picture of the God that we have who says, who says, child, I know what's good for you, and I know what isn't. And I know that you're going to fail. And when you fail... I'm going to be here, and I'm going to hold your hair up, and then I'm going to be here to receive you, and then we can try this again. That's the Jesus that we worship, the empty life, the empty life where it's more blessed to give than to receive. Have you ever seen an angry, bitter, cynical, generous person? Have you seen that? No. But have you ever seen someone that is angry and bitter and withholding? That's part of what we see. Have you seen someone that served others? And enables us to see the same. Someone that loved his enemies. I mean, Jesus had people that were literally out to kill him, showing and teaching us what loving our enemies are. I don't have people plotting to kill me. I, I don't think. Thanks. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a little worrying. She knows where I live. I don't. I don't have people plotting to kill me, but I have people that say mean things about me. And for whatever reason, I can't find the grace 
to pray for them. I can't find the grace to, to give them the benefit of the doubt. But when I look at how Jesus lived, and when I look at how he called us to live in the empty, emptying of self, by the grace of the Spirit that fills me as a Christ follower, I'm able to do those things. Not perfectly, but able to do those. Where Jesus can speak truth and grace at the same time. Where he can say, no, that isn't right and still love us in the midst of this. I've spoken about this before. One of the tragedies of the last year is that, is that we expect the worst from each other. That there's a sense in which we automatically kind of approach people with a different perspective, with a sense of contempt. And that isn't the emptying of self. That isn't the empty way. That isn't how Jesus showed us how to live. The, the important thing that we celebrate if we, if we are Christ followers is that Jesus didn't just show us um, and give us a ticket to eternal life. He showed us by his example and by his spirit that we are able to live a life of flourishing in a way that is for the common good of the people around us. He showed us how to love God by loving our neighbor. And emptying, is not, emptying of yourself is not this idea of wallowing in worthlessness. Now, what's important about the scripture is Jesus knew he was God. It wasn't like he was like, I'm God? That's awesome. No, he knew he was God. The God had decided to send the son in human form. He knew he was God. But what does the scripture says? He did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped. He knew he was God. We are more able to empty ourselves when we truly know who we are. So this is the thing. A confident person able to serve, able to give people the benefit of the doubt, able to be generous, able to be lovingly truthful, is someone who knows who they are. Someone who's trying to prove who they are, it's much more difficult to live in the way of Jesus. And so all of our responses to this world come from the very reality of understanding who we are. This is not the idea of, of wanting to make ourselves useless. You are not useless. You're not a burden. You're not too much or too little. I used to coach um, Fallon's softball team for, for many years, and, um, and uh, I, was, I was tossing up balls to one of her teammates, um, and she, she kept missing. Um, and, and so I stopped, and, I, and this is all I said to her. I said to her, baby, um, and I couldn't get a word out, and this is what she said, I know, I suck. And I was like, like in that moment, I, I grabbed her by the shoulders, which I probably shouldn't have done. But I grabbed her by the shoulders and I said, you never say that again. This is meaningless, this kind of stuff, whether you hit a ball or not. You are not worthless. You do not suck. And there are things that we are able to do. There are things that we're not able to do. There are areas that we fail. There are areas that we succeed in. But none of that affects our worth. There is a massive difference between us not being worthy and us being worthless. If we were worthless, Jesus would not have gone through what he went through in order to rescue us back to himself. Massive difference between us not being worthy to receive that kind of love because we were marred and tainted by sin and not being worthy. And so the empty life is not about this taking on this posture of, of uh, I'm, I'm not worthy. Oh, woe is me. I'm not worthy. No, it's, it's like someone said, and I can't remember who it was. And legitimately, I can't remember who it was. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Now, some of us have the opposite problem. Some of us have this idea that, that, uh, the, that the empty life is 
actually constantly proving that we are someone or something. I was wearing a, a green T-shirt that has that white recycle sign on. Do you know, you know what I'm talking about? That, that little triangle. And I went to have my blood drawn. And, uh, and I was sitting there and kind of gave her my arm. And, and she was like, oh, that's going to be easy. And so, um, and so she's making small talk. And, uh, and then she said to me, so are, are you going back to work? And I said, yes, I'm going back to work. She said, where do you work? And you know, at that stage, I, w- I was working uh, at a church in Brea. And I said, oh, I work at the church in Brave. She said, oh, oh, are you the janitor? <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm both offended and confused at the moment. I, and I look down and I think she's probably thinking that the reuse, recycled shirt is like, that's my uniform or something. And, um, and, then, and, then, and then I realized, okay, how do I gently correct her, you know, because I don't want anyone to think I'm a janitor, you know. And so I, I, I just tried to gently correct her. I said, no, actually, I, I, you know, I, I'm one of the pastors there. And, uh, you know, trying to be really humble about this, you know, no, you know. I got in my car. And as I sat in my car, the Holy Spirit said to me, what's so bad about being a janitor? Why were you so offended? And in that moment, in that car, sitting in the Kaiser parking lot, I realized that emptying of self is not this idea of I'm worthless, I suck. It's also not this idea of consistently needing to prove, my, prove myself. It's the sense of knowing my true identity in Jesus Christ, knowing that as a, as a Christ follower, I'm a child of God saved by grace. I'm the object of his affection with nothing to prove. I'm not a survivor and I'm not a slave either. And that's one of the joys that we celebrate is that Jesus came to show us what an empty life could look like in the sense of the fullness of it as Alex showed us this morning. The second thing we celebrate is the empty cup. What is the cup that we're talking about? In Scripture, we we understand that Jesus drank the cup of, of God's wrath. What does that even mean? Jeremiah 25 verse 15 says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take this cup of, wine, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I'm sending you drink it. The cup of wrath in the Old Testament, the New Testament, is symbolic of the rightful, legitimate judgment that a pure and holy God has to exercise on a sin-ridden world because of our sin, rebellion, and disobedience. It was a hellish concoction. It was something that, that included all the, the punishment for the fact that we wanted to be our own God that we didn't trust God's pattern, that God had not said this, these things for our flourishing. And it is, includes in the cup is the price that we need to pay for our autonomy and rebellion. It's the consequence of creating our own idols and worshiping idols. And that isn't the real issue. The real issue is that what we're saying by creating our own idols is we don't want to be with God. Because not only is it dangerous creating your own idols, but literally you're saying, I'm going to create something else to worship so that I don't want to be with you. It is the penalty of every evil act perpetrated. And this is not just individual sin. This is every act perpetrated on the innocent, all the injustice and oppression in the world. All of that is concentrated in this cup. We had a family meal and um, we were... We were packing up the dishes, and uh, someone had filled up the sink, so we couldn't just put the dishes in the sink. 
and someone came and gave me uh, my cup from, from the table. And so I took the cup and I downed it. And I'm like, oh, that, that doesn't taste too good. Well, what Karin's mom had done is she had gone around the table and she had emptied all the cups into my cup and then walked in and said, whose is this? And so I said, that's mine. And I grabbed it and I drank it. And then Stephen, Karin's cousin, and Karin were standing at me like this. And I'm like, what? She said, do you know what that is? And I said, no, I don't know what that is. Only after she said that, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that I did. It was too late. It wasn't in my mouth. It was busy being digested, you know, like 16 people's dregs was busy being digested in here. Now, let me say one thing, right? As gross as that is, I had no idea what I was doing. Jesus had every idea about what he was doing. In the garden, what we celebrate on Good Friday, Jesus says to the Father, going a little farther, he fell face down and he said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. There's the sense in which when, when we, if we're, if we're Christ followers, when, when we understand or when, when we think about the fact that Jesus has saved us, we think that actually we were moral seekers of, of truth, that, that we were good people, that were lost, we, we didn't find the way, and, and that Jesus kind of helped us find the way. No, the, the Bible is, is clear on what we were. We were enemies of, of God. We were tainted by original sin, participate actively in sin, and have been marred by the sin of others. We have been brutally affected by other people and have affected other people brutally, but most importantly, we have sinned against the Holy God. And so the cup is necessary. The reason why Jesus was so exceedingly sorrowful even to death was because he knew how vile that cup would be. Every sin, every act of abuse, every brokenness, every evil in the world was concentrated in that cup in that one moment. Just think about your life Maybe some of you have done things or have had things done to you, and maybe you, you flash back and you're haunted by these moments. There are things like that where sometimes I literally need to pray in that moment, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And I, I have to engage and I, ha and, 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 and I have to ask the God of grace to say, come and cleanse me from that memory. You know how difficult some of those memories are. Just one for one person. Imagine every single act of vileness and abuse, every single oppression, national injustice, everything concentrated in that moment, in that cup where Jesus is bowing to the Father saying, is there another way? Because he knew how vile that cup would be, and yet he chose to drink that cup. That cup is empty. The cup of God's judgment against sin is empty. And one of the things that we celebrate and have the privilege of celebrating is that that cup is empty. Jesus knew there was no other way other than the, the shedding of his blood. This is the thing, though. He had the power to prevent this. We know that he did. He had the power to find another way because he was God incarnate. But in that moment, what he was saying is that the relationship between God the Son, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will be fractured 
so that all of humanity that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior gets to be part of the glorious Trinity and gets oneness with Jesus Christ, the Father and the Spirit. Part of the way that we, we push this idea away is that, is that sometimes we think that we are innocent. So sometimes we think, no, I haven't done anything wrong or what I've done is not, is not that bad compared to others. Now we have a debt that needed to be paid and this was our debt, was our sin, the sin that has been perpetrated against us. I mean, in a, in a, in a weird way, it, it's like this. I, I was sitting in a restaurant. I ordered a meal. It was Karen and myself. We ordered a meal and, um, and we ate that meal. And we had to pay. There was, there was a, a debt to pay for that meal. And one of our friends saw us and went to the waiter and paid for our meal. If any of you ever do that and want to see us in a restaurant, want to do that, just, you know, just feel free to do that anytime you want to do that. How ridiculous would it be if I went to the waiter and he said to me, hey, your, your debt has been paid. And I said, I don't need anything. I don't need to pay anything. No, no. No, you ate something. There is a debt to pay, but someone else paid it. And so this idea with our own sin is that we stand before God and we say, I didn't do anything that bad. And, and God's saying, no, you did, but someone has paid for it. So we don't come to God claiming innocence. We come to God with a fresh and open conscience, not because we are innocent, but because our debt has been paid. Because Jesus emptied the cup of God's wrath against sin on us. And that's why we can celebrate. Finally, we celebrate the fact that Jesus emptied the tomb. The cross is incomplete without the resurrection. The cross is where Jesus paid for our sin. But the resurrection is where he broke the power of sin and of Satan and of death. But Nick, just because the tomb was empty doesn't actually mean that he was resurrected. I don't have time to go into this, but I can say this. There is more evidence for Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection than there is for Caesar crossing the Rubicon. The fact that there were women named as eyewitnesses, because in those days, um, the testimony of a woman would not have been admissible, and yet they named the specific woman. There were specific men that were alive at the time of the writing of the epistles that are named as witnesses. There are people, Christians and others, that saw Jesus. There are um, non-Christian corroborating history. If you want to know about how bare and historical the fact of the resurrection is, I'd love to talk to you about, uh, about it afterwards. But that is what we are celebrating. We are celebrating the fact that a bunch of scared and frightened and unbelieving disciples changed the world by the way in which they lived, by the way that they were empowered, by the fact that resurrection life had seeped into them through the Spirit, and that many of them died a martyr's death. If this was all a hoax, I'm sure one of them would have said, you know, it didn't really happen. Now, there have been many selfless, loving people that have died for others. Many. I mean, history is full of those things. When, when you look at Hollywood, you know, you get these like B-grade movies like Armageddon where... Bruce Willis is like the savior figure and, you know, he blows up the asteroid and is like, I'm the man because I gave myself, you know. And like, you know what? We don't celebrate 
a dead prophet or teacher. We don't even celebrate someone that decided to sacrifice their life on our behalf. We celebrate a resurrected king. We're not remembering the kind words or the deep, wise sayings of a guru. What we're doing as we gather this morning is we are saying, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, you are king. And you are present right now because this is your body and you are the head of the body. The empty tomb fills us with hope. Because as Peter said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is not in something past. Our hope is in something present. We look to the past and see what Jesus has done, the way in which he lived, what he accomplished by his death. But we have a living hope. And that living hope is one of intimacy and closeness with you. Hope in the New Testament is not some kind of hesitant, uncertain optimism. It is a sure and confident expectation. And our hope rests on Jesus Christ who is currently alive. The tomb fills me with hope because my past circumstances are forgivable. The resurrection is proof that the cycle of sinning and atonement is broken. Like Sean said, what, what God was showing throughout the Old Testament is that sin is something that needs to be dealt with through the sacrifice of blood and instituted a system where every year certain sacrifices were needed to be made. And yet now we know that our past is dealt with once and for all because of the sacrifice, yes, of the cross, but more importantly of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our current situations when difficult are more tolerable. So our past circumstances are forgivable. Our current situation is more tolerable. It's more tolerable because we have intimacy with the risen king. We have someone who understands and has experienced all of our temptation and suffering. And Jesus did not say, if you believe certain things about me, then you will have eternal peace and you will have a life worth living. He said, Come to me, be with me, confess your need of me, repent from your own way of doing things and I will be with you. And it is my current active relationship in you through the Holy Spirit that is going to bring change to you and to this world. This is not a set of academic principles or a set of philosophical ideas that we align to. What we are being invited into and why the resurrection gives us current hope is because we are invited into a relationship with Jesus. That is what we are being invited into. This is not just a legal exchange. Yes, there was a legal exchange. But the legal exchange happened in order for us to have a relationship with Jesus, not the other way around. The debt needed to be satisfied. Most of us stop there. Some kind of legal transaction that took place. No, it's not that cold. It's not that bare. It's a brutal thing. That brings us life because of our relationship with Jesus. Our current situation is tolerable because suffering and trials in this day and age have meaning. Rosaria Butterfield says, A life outside of Christ is both hard and frightening. A life in Christ has hard edges and dark valleys, but it is purposeful even when painful. Even in the Old Testament, in Psalm 23, where the writer says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because it's not scary? No. 
Because I'm a big man? No, because you are with me. And so Jesus never promised an easy life or a life without a hard edges or a life without dark valleys. But what he promises and what he's proven through the resurrection is he will be with you. We experience his intimacy through his word. We experience his intimacy through, through the spirit of God, through the body operating and the gifts of the spirit of God. We experience this when we when we um, participate in the one another's to one another and people can see Jesus in that. We have a current hope because Jesus has established what is known as the already and not yet kingdom. And what that means is this personal change and growth can happen, does happen, but not fully and completely until we are resurrected with Jesus. That healing and the miraculous does happen, but it's not automatic. That societal change and justice and equity can happen, but not fully until Jesus returns. We can change. We can grow. We can be healed. There is hope for the addict. There is hope for the depressed. There is hope for the habitual sinner. There's hope for the tired and for the persecuted. There's hope for the forgotten, but there's also hope for the proud. There's hope for the busy. There's hope for the overly productive. Finally, our future is filled with the certainty of peace and joy. Death is nothing to fear. And this year, we know that people have come face to face with the idea. I said to Karen the other day, the thing that surprises me that this year has shown me is that I, somehow I think people thought they weren't going to die, ever. And, and so what happened is with COVID kind of putting this wet blanket on our identities and society, what it showed us is that actually death is still a reality that we as Americans with the highest kind of quality of life are still going to face. But the resurrection says this, it is nothing to fear. We get glorified bodies where we become our true selves. We get a glorified new home. Earth and heaven are restored and every division and every injustice is obliterated in that moment. That's what resurrection life looks like. Most importantly, we come face to face with our Savior. I cannot tell you how sick of Zoom I am. And the thing about Zoom is this, is I'm grateful for it. But what it is, is it's a pale, very, very pale way to connect with someone. And right now, in a sense, that, that we can connect with God. There's a sense in which we can hear Him. There's a sense in which we can exchange with Him and interact with Him. But there will be a day when we're able to smell Him, where we're able to feel Him, to touch Him, to look into His eyes, and every bad thing will be undone. I've said this before. My joy is not just the things that I have done and the, and the evil that has been perpetrated on me and when I look at people around me, that I'll remember them and those things will be forgotten. I won't even know that those things happened. There will be such a purity to my mind, such a purity to my body and to my spirit that I'm going to be one with Jesus. Man, that gives me hope for the future. Hope is not a faint, lingering emotion but it is a strong and steady foundation on which I can build a life that though may be hard, is purposeful, joyful, and eternal. If you need to get changed for the baptism, this is your cue. So finally, we celebrate the empty cup 
The empty cup is our salvation. Jesus drank the cup of judgment so that we could drink deeply of the cup of his mercy. That's what happens at communion. We exchange one cup for another. The empty tomb is our hope because he has conquered death, Satan, and sin. He currently sits at the right hand of the Father praying for us. He has sent his spirit into our lives that enable us to cry out, Abba, Father. And the emptying of self is our way. Not desiring to be filled with the world or our flesh, the, the, the things the world or the flesh or the devil say will satisfy us, but a, a life marked by humility, by service, by joy, by purpose, by courage, by grace, and by truth. The emptying life is not an empty one, but it enables us to be filled and complete, lacking nothing for our present and future hope. Let me pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church over you. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us and all who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above all rule and all authority, or power, or leader, or anything else, not in this world only, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. Listen here. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. The emptying life is not an empty one. The emptying life is a life that we submit to Jesus that is made full and complete by him who fills all things everywhere with himself. Christ has risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.